Section 3 of The Dolliver Romance and Other Pieces by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Another fragment of The Dolliver Romance. Footnote. Never before printed. End footnote. Be secret. And he kept his stern eye fixed upon him as the coach began to move. Be secret, repeated the apothecary. I know not any secret that he has confided to me thus far. And as for his nonsense, as I will be bold to style it now he is gone, about a medicine of long life, it is a thing I forget in spite of myself. So very empty and trashy it is. I wonder, by the by, that it never came into my head to give the colonel a dose of the cordial whereof I partook last night. I have no faith that it is a valuable medicine, little or none, and yet there has been an unwanted briskness in me all the morning. Then a simple joy broke over his face, a flickering sunbeam among his wrinkles, as he heard the laughter of the little girl, who was running rampant with a kitten in the kitchen. Pansy, pansy, cackled he. Grandpapa has sent away the ugly man now. Come, let us have a frolic in the garden. And he whispered to himself again, That is a cordial yonder, and I will take it according to the prescription, knowing all the ingredients. Then after a moment's thought, he added, All save one. So, as he had declared to himself his intention, that night when little Pansy had long been asleep and his small household was in bed, and most of the quiet, old-fashioned townsfolk likewise, this good apothecary went into his laboratory and took out of a cupboard in the wall a certain ancient-looking bottle, which was cased over with a network of what seemed to be woven silver, like the wicker-woven bottles of our days. He had previously provided a goblet of pure water. Before opening the bottle, however, he seemed to hesitate, and pondered and babbled to himself, having long since come to that period of life when the bodily frame, having lost much of its value, is more tenderly cared for than when it was a perfect and inestimable machine. I treacherated, I infused, I distilled it myself in these very rooms, and know it, know it all, all the ingredients save one. They are common things enough, comfortable things, some of them a little queer, one or two that folks have a prejudice against, and then there is that one thing that I don't know. It is foolish in me to be dallying with such a mess, which I thought was a piece of quackery, while that strange visitor bade me do it. And yet, what a strength has come from it! He said it was a rare cordial, and methinks it has brightened up my weary life all day, so that Pansy has found me the fitter playmate. And then the dose. It is so absurdly small. I will try it again. He took the silver stopple from the bottle, and with a practiced hand, tremulous as it was with age, so that one would have thought it must have shaken the liquor into a perfect shower of misapplied drops, he dropped, I have heard it said, only one single drop into the goblet of water. It fell into it with a dazzling brightness, like a spark of ruby flame, and subtly diffusing itself through the whole body of water, turned it to a rosy hue of great brilliancy. He held it up between his eyes and the light, and seemed to admire and wonder at it. "'It is very odd,' said he, "'that such a pure, bright liqueur should have come out of a parcel of weeds that 
mingled their juices here. The thing is a folly. It is one of those compositions in which the chemists, the cabalists, perhaps, used to combine what they thought the virtues of many plants, thinking that something would result in the whole which was not in either of them, and a new efficacy be created. Whereas it had been the teaching of my experience that one virtue counteracts another, and is the enemy of it. I never believed the former theory, even when that strange madman bade me do it. And what a thick, turbid matter it was until that last ingredient, that powder which he put in with his own hand. Had he let me see it, I would first have analyzed it and discovered its component parts. The man was mad, undoubtedly, and this may have been poison, but its effect is good. Pooh! I will taste again because of this weak, agued, miserable state of mine. Though it is a shame in me, a man of decent skill in my way, to believe in a quack's nostrum. But it is a comfortable kind of thing. Meantime, that single drop, for good Dr. Dolliver, had immediately put a stopper into the bottle, diffused a sweet odor through the chamber, so that the ordinary fragrances and scents of apothecary's stuff seemed to be controlled and influenced by it, and its bright potency also dispelled a certain dimness of the antiquated room. The doctor, at the pressure of a great need, had given incredible pains to the manufacture of this medicine, so that, reckoning the pains rather than the ingredients, all except one, of which he was not able to estimate the cost nor value, it was really worth its weight in gold, and, as it happened, he had bestowed upon it the hard labor of his poor life, and the time that was necessary for the support of his family without return. For the customers, after playing off this cruel joke upon the old man, had never come back, and now for seven years the bottle had stood in a corner of the cupboard. To be sure, the silver-cased bottle was worth a trifle for its silver, and still more perhaps as an antiquarian knick-knack. But all things considered, the honest and simple apothecary thought that he might make free with the liquid to such small extent as was necessary for himself. And there had been something in the concoction that had struck him, and he had been fast-breaking lately. And so, in the dreary fantasy and lonely recklessness of his old age, he had suddenly bethought himself of this medicine, cordial, as the strange man called it, which had come to him by long inheritance in his family, and he had determined to try it. And again, as the night before, he took out the receipt, a roll of antique parchment out of which, provokingly, one fold had been lost, and put on his spectacles to puzzle out the passage. Guttum unicum in aquam purum tugils. If the colonel should hear of this, said Dr. Dolliver, he might fancy it his nostrum of long life and insist on having the bottle for his own use. The foolish, fierce old gentleman. He has grown very earthly of late, else he would not desire such a thing. And a strong desire it must be to make him feel desirable. For my part, I only wish for something that, for a short time, may clear my eyes, so that I may see little Pansy's beauty, and quicken my ears, that I may hear her sweet voice and give me nerve while God keeps me here, that I may live longer to earn bread for dear Pansy. She provided for, I would gladly lie down yonder with Bessie and our children. Ah, the vanity of desiring lengthened days. There, I have drunk it, and methinks its final, subtle flavor hath strange potency in it. The old man shivered a little, as those shiver who have just swallowed a good liqueur, 
while it is permeating their vitals. Yet he seemed to be in a pleasant state of feeling. And as was frequently the case with this simple soul, in a devout frame of mind. He read a chapter in the Bible, and said his prayers for Pansy and himself, before he went to bed, and had much better sleep than usually comes to people of his advanced age, for at that period sleep is diffused, through their wakefulness and a dim and tiresome half-perception through their sleep, so that the only result is wariness. Nothing very extraordinary happened to Dr. Dolliver or his small household for some time afterwards. He was favored with a comfortable winter, and thanked heaven for it, and put it to a good use. At least he intended it so, by concocting drugs, which perhaps did a little towards peopling the graveyard into which his windows looked. But that was neither his purpose nor his fault. None of the sleepers, at all events, interrupted their slumbers to upbraid him. He had done, according to his own artless conscience, and the recipes of licensed physicians, and he looked no further but pounded, triturated, infused, made electuaries, boluses, juleps, or whatever he termed his productions, with skill and diligence, thanking heaven that he was spared to do so, when his contemporaries generally were getting incapable of similar efforts. It struck him with some surprise but much gratitude to Providence, that his sight seemed to be growing rather better than worse. He certainly could read the crabbed handwriting and hieroglyphics of the physicians with more readiness than he could a year earlier, but he had been originally nearsighted, with large projecting eyes, and nearsighted eyes always seem to get a new lease of light as the years go on. One thing was perceptible about the doctor's eyes, not only to himself in the glass, but to everybody else, namely, that they had been an accustomed gleaming brightness in them. Not so very bright either, but yet so much so that little Pansy noticed it, and sometimes in her playful, roguish way, climbed up into his lap and put both her small palms over them, telling Grandpapa that he had stolen somebody else's eyes and given away his own, and that she liked his old ones better. The poor old doctor did his best to smile through his eyes, and so to reconcile Pansy to their brightness. But still she continually made the same silly remonstrance, so that he was fain to put on a pair of green spectacles when he was going to play with Pansy, or took her on his knee. Nay, if he looked at her, as had always been his custom after she was asleep, in order to see that all was well with her, the little child would put up her hands as if he held a light that was flashing on her eyeballs, and unless he turned away his gaze quickly, she would wake up in a fit of crying. On the whole, the apothecary had as comfortable a time as a man of his years could expect. The air of the house and of the old graveyard seemed to suit him. What so seldom happens in man's advancing age, his night's rest did him good, whereas generally an old man wakes up ten times as nervous and dispirited as he went to bed, just as if during his sleep he had been working harder than ever he did in the daytime. It had been so with the doctor himself till within a few months. To be sure, he had latterly begun to practice various rules of diet and exercise, which commended themselves to his approbation. He sawed some of his own firewood and fancied that, as was reasonable, it fatigued him less day by day. He took walks with Pansy, and though, of course, her little footsteps, treading on the elastic air of childhood, far outstripped his own, still the old man knew that he was not beyond the recuperative period of life, and that exercise out of doors and proper food can do somewhat towards retarding the approach of age. 
He was inclined also to impute much good effect to a daily dose of Santa Cruz rum, a liqueur much in vogue in that day, which he was now in the habit of quaffing at the meridian hour. All through the doctor's life he had eschewed strong spirits. But after seventy, quoth old Dr. Dolliver, a man is all the better in head and stomach for a little stimulus. And it certainly seemed so in his case. Likewise, I know not precisely how often, but complying punctiliously with the recipe as an apothecary naturally would, he took his drop of the mysterious cordial. He was inclined, however, to impute little or no efficacy to this, and to laugh at himself for having ever thought otherwise. The dose was so very minute, and he had never been sensible of any remarkable effect on taking it after all. A genial warmth, he sometimes fancied, diffused itself throughout him, and perhaps continued during the next day. A quiet and refreshing night's rest followed, and alacritous waking in the morning. But all this was far more probably owing, as had been already hinted, to excellent and well-considered habits of diet and exercise. Nevertheless, he still continued the cordial with tolerable regularity, the more because on one or two occasions, happening to omit it, it so chanced that he slept wretchedly, and awoke in strange aches and pains, torpors, nervousness, shaking of the hands, bleariness of sight, lowness of spirits, and other ills, as is the misfortune of some old men, who are often threatened by a thousand evil symptoms that come to nothing, foreboding no particular disorder, and passing away as unsatisfactorily as they come. At another time he took two or three drops at once, and was alarmingly feverish in consequence. Yet it was very true that the feverish symptoms were pretty sure to disappear on his renewal of the medicine. Still, it could not be that... Still, it could not be that, thought the old man, a hater of empiricism, in which, however, is contained all hope for man, and disinclined to believe in anything that was not according to rule and art. And then, as aforesaid, the dose was so ridiculously small. Sometimes, however... He took, half-laughingly, another view of it, and felt disposed to think that chance might really have thrown in his way a very remarkable mixture, by which, if it had happened to him earlier in life, he might have amassed a larger fortune, and might even have raked together such a competency as would have prevented his feeling much uneasiness about the future of little Pansy. Feeling as strong as he did nowadays, he might reasonably count upon ten years more of life and in that time the precious liquor might be changed for much gold. Let us see, quoth he, by what attractive name shall it be advertised? The old man's cordial? That promises too little. <laughs> I would stain my honesty, my fair reputation, the accumulation of a lifetime, and befool my neighbor and the public by any name that would make them imagine I had found that ridiculous talisman that the alchemists have sought. The old man's cordial, that is best, and five shillings sterling the bottle. That surely were not too costly, and would give the medicine a better reputation and higher vogue. So foolish is the world, than if I were to put it lower. I will think further of this, but pshaw, pshaw. What is the matter, Grandpapa? said little Pansy, who had stood by him, wishing to speak to him at least a minute, but had been deterred by his absorption. Why do you say pshaw? Pshaw, repeated Grandpapa. There is one ingredient that I don't know. 
so this very hopeful design was necessarily given up, but that it had occurred to Dr. Dolliver was perhaps a token that his mind was in a very vigorous state, for it had been noted of him through life that he had little enterprise, little activity, and that for the want of these things his very considerable skill in his art had been almost thrown away. As regarded his private affairs, when it might easily have led him to fortune. Whereas, here in his extreme age, he had first bethought himself of a way to grow rich. Sometimes this latter spring causes, as blossoms come on the autumnal tree, a spurt of vigor or untimely greenness, when nature laughs at her old child, half in kindness and half in scorn. It is observable, however, I fancy, that after such a spurt, Age comes on with redoubled speed, and that the old man has only run forward with a show of force in order to fall into his grave the sooner. Sometimes, as he was walking briskly along the street, with little Pansy clasping his hand, and perhaps frisking rather more than became a person of his venerable years, he had met the grim old wreck of Colonel Dabney, moving goutily, and gathering wrath anew with every touch of his painful foot to the ground or driving by in his carriage, showing an ashen, angry, wrinkled face at the window, and frowning at him, the apothecary thought, with a peculiar fury, as if he took umbrage at his audacity in being less broken by age than a gentleman like himself. The apothecary could not help feeling as if there were some unsettled quarrel or dispute between himself and the colonel. He could not tell what or why. The colonel always gave him a haughty nod of half-recognition, and the people in the street, to whom he was a familiar object, would say, The worshipful colonel begins to find himself mortal like the rest of us. He feels his years. He'd be glad, I warrant, said one, to change with you, doctor. It shows what difference a good life makes in men, to look at him and you. You are half a score of years his elder, methinks, and yet look what temperance can do for a man. By my credit, neighbor, seeing how brisk you have been lately, I told my wife, you seem to be growing younger. It does me good to see it. We are about of an age, I think, and I like to notice how we old men keep young and keep one another in heart. I myself <laughs> feel younger this season than for these five years past. It rejoices me that you feel so, quoth the apothecary, who had just been thinking that this neighbor of his had lost a great deal both in mind and body within a short period, and rather scorned him for it. Indeed, I find old age less uncomfortable than I supposed. Little Pansy and I make excellent companions for one another. And then dragged along by Pansy's little hand, and also impelled by a certain alacrity that rose with him in the morning, and lasted till his healthy rest at night, he bade farewell to his contemporary and hastened on. While the latter, left behind, was somewhat irritated as he looked at the vigorous movement of the apothecary's legs. "'He need not make such show of briskness, neither,' muttered he to himself. "'This touch of rheumatism troubles me just a bit now. But try it on a good day, and I'd walk with him for a shilling. Pshaw, I'll walk to his funeral yet.' One day, while the doctor, with the activity that bestirred itself in him nowadays, was mixing and manufacturing certain medicaments that came in frequent demand, a carriage stopped at his door, and he recognized the voice of Colonel Dabney, talking in his customary stern tone to the woman who served him. In a moment afterwards, the coach drove away, and he actually heard the old dignitary lumbering upstairs, 
and bestowing a curse upon each particular step, as if that were the method to make them soften and become easier when he should come down again. "'Pray, your worship,' said the doctor from above, "'let me attend you below stairs.' "'No,' growled the colonel. "'I'll meet you on your own ground. "'I can climb a stair yet, and be hanged to you.' So saying, he painfully finished the ascent and came into the laboratory, where he let himself fall into the doctor's easy chair, with an anathema on the chair of the doctor and himself. And staring round through the dusk, he met the wide-open, startled eyes of a little pansy, who had been reading a gilt picture book in the corner. "'Send away that child, Dolliver!' cried Colonel angrily. "'Confound her! She makes my bones ache! I hate everything young!' "'Lord Colonel,' the poor apothecary ventured to say, "'there must be young people in the world as well as old ones. "'It's my mind a man's grandchildren keep him warm round about him.' "'I have none and want none,' sharply responded the Colonel. "'And as for young people, let me be one of them.' and they may exist otherwise or not. It is a cursed bad arrangement of the world that they're young and old here together. When Pansy had gone away, which she did with anything but reluctance, having a natural antipathy to this monster of a colonel, the latter personage tapped with his crutch-handled cane on a chair that stood near, and nodded in an authoritative way to the apothecary to sit down in it. Dr. Dolliver complied submissively, and the colonel, with dull, unkindly eyes, looked at him sternly and with a kind of intelligence amid the aged stolidity of his aspect that somewhat puzzled the doctor. In this way he surveyed him all over, like a judge, when he means to hang a man, and for some reason or none the apothecary felt his nerves shake beneath the steadfast look. "'Aha, doctor,' said the colonel at last with a doltish sneer, "'you bear your years well.' "'Decently well, Colonel. I thank Providence for it,' answered the meek apothecary. "'I should say,' quoth the Colonel. "'You are younger at this moment than when we spoke together two or three years ago. "'I noted then that your eyebrows were handsome snow-white, "'such as befits a man who has passed beyond his threescore years and ten, and five years more. "'Why, they are getting dark again, Mr. Apothecary.' "'Nay, your worship must needs be mistaken there.' said the doctor with a timorous chuckle. It is many a year since I have taken a deliberate note of my wretched old visage in a glass, but I remember they were white when I looked last. Come, doctor, I know a thing or two, said the colonel with a bitter scoff. And what's this, you old rogue? Why, you've rubbed away a wrinkle since we met. Take off those infernal spectacles and look me in the face. Ha! I see the devil in your eye. How dare you let it shine upon me so? "'On my conscience, Colonel,' said the apothecary, strangely struck with the coincidence of this accusation with little Pansy's complaint. "'I know not what you mean. My sight is pretty well for a man of my age. We nearsighted people begin to know our best eyesight, when other people have lost theirs.' "'Ah, ah, old rogue!' repeated the insufferable Colonel, gnashing his ruined teeth at him, as if— for some incomprehensible reason, he wished to tear him to pieces and devour him. I know you. You're taking the life away from me, villain. And I told you it was my inheritance. And I told you there was a bloody footstep bearing its track down through my race. I remember nothing of it, said the doctor in a quake, sure that the colonel was in one of his mad fits. And on the word of an honest man, I never wronged you in my life, colonel. 
We shall see, said the colonel, whose wrinkled visage grew absolutely terrible with its hardness, and his dull eyes, without losing their dullness, seemed to look through him. Listen to me, sir. Some ten years ago there came to you a man on a secret business. He had an old, musty bit of parchment on which were written some words, hardly legible in an antique hand. An old deed it might have been, some familiar document, and here and there the letters were faded away. But this man had spent his life over it, and he had made out the meaning, and he interpreted it to you, and left it with you, only there was one gap, one torn or obliterated place. Well, sir, he bade you with your poor little skill at the mortar, and for a certain sum, ample repayment for such a service, to manufacture this medicine, this cordial. It was an affair of months, and just when you thought it finished, the man came again and stood over your cursed beverage, and shook a powder, or dropped a lump in it, or put in some ingredient, in which was all the hidden virtue, or at least it drew out all the hidden virtue of the mean and common herbs, and married them into a wondrous efficacy, this done, the man bade you do certain other things with the potation and went away. The colonel hesitated a moment. I never came back again. Surely, colonel, you are correct, said the apothecary, much startled, however, at the colonel's showing himself so well acquainted with an incident which he had supposed a secret with himself alone. Yet he had a little reluctance in owning it, although he did not exactly understand why, since the colonel had apparently no rightful claim to it at all events. "'That medicine, that receipt,' continued his visitor, "'is my hereditary property, and I challenge you, on your peril, to give it up.' "'But what if the original owner should call upon me for it?' objected Dr. Dolliver. "'I'll warrant you against that,' said the colonel, and the apothecary thought there was something ghastly in his look and tone. Why, tis ten year, you old fool, and do you think a man with a treasure like that in his possession would have waited so long? Seven years it was ago, said the apothecary. Septum annus positus, so says the Latin. Curse your Latin, answers the colonel. Produce the stuff. You have been violating the first rule of your trade, taking your own drugs. Your own, in one sense, mine by right of... Three hundred years. Bring it forth, I say. Pray excuse me, worthy colonel, pleaded the apothecary, for though convinced that the old gentleman was only in one of his insane fits, when he talked of the value of this concoction, yet he really did not like to give up the cordial, which perhaps had wrought him some benefit. Besides, he had at least a claim upon it for much trouble and skill expended in its composition. This he suggested to the colonel, who scornfully took out of his pocket a network purse, with more golden guineas in it than the apothecary had seen in the whole seven years, and was rude enough to fling it in his face. "'Take that!' thundered he, "'and give up the thing, or I will have you in prison before you are an hour older.' "'Nay!' he continued, growing pale, which was his mode of showing terrible wrath, since all through life till extreme age quenched it, his ordinary face had been a blazing red— I'll put you to death, you villain, as I have a right. And thrusting his hand into his waistcoat pocket, lo, the madman took a small pistol from it, which he cocked and presented at the poor apothecary. The old fellow quaked and cowered in his chair, and would indeed have given up his whole shopful of better concocted medicines than this to be out of this danger. Besides, there were the guineas, 
The colonel had paid him a princely sum for what was probably worth nothing. Hold, hold, cried he as the colonel with stern eye pointed the pistol at his head. You shall have it. So he rose all trembling and crept to that secret cupboard where the precious bottle, since precious it seemed to be, was reposited. In all his life, long as it had been, the apothecary had never before been threatened by a deadly weapon, though many as deadly a thing had he seen poured into a glass without winking. And so it seemed to take his heart and life away, and he brought the cordial forth feebly, and stood tremulously before the colonel, ashy pale, and looking ten years older than his real age, instead of five years younger as he had seemed just before this disastrous interview with the colonel. "'You look as if you need a drop of it yourself,' said Colonel Dabney with great scorn. "'But not a drop you shall have. Already have you stolen too much,' said he, lifting up the bottle and marking the space to which the liquor had subsided in it, in consequence of the minute doses with which the apothecary had made free. "'Fool, had you taken your glass like a man, you might have been young again. Now, creep on. The few months you have left, poor, torpid knave.' and die. Come, a goblet, quick! He clutched the bottle meanwhile voraciously, miserly, eagerly, furiously, as if it were his life that he held in his grasp. Angry, impatient, as if something long sought were within his reach, and not yet secure, with longing thirst and desire, suspicious of the world and of fate, feeling as if an iron hand were over him and a crowd of violent robbers round about him, struggling for it. At last, unable to wait longer, just as the apothecary was tottering away in quest of a drinking glass, the colonel took out the stopple and lifted the flask itself to his lips. "'For heaven's sake, no!' cried the doctor. "'The dose is one single drop. One drop, colonel. One drop!' "'Not a drop to save your wretched old soul,' responded the colonel, probably thinking that the apothecary was pleading for a small share of the precious liquor. He put it to his lips, and, as if quenching a lifelong thirst, swallowed deep draughts, sucking it in with desperation. Till void of breath, he set it down upon the table. The rich, poignant perfume spread itself through the air. The apothecary, with an instinctive carefulness that was rather ludicrous under the circumstances, caught up the stopper which the colonel had let fall, and forced it into the bottle to prevent any farther escape of virtue. He then fearfully watched the result of the madman's potation. The colonel sat for a moment in his chair, panting for breath, then started to his feet with a prompt vigor that contrasted widely with the infirm and rheumatic movements that had heretofore characterized him. He struck his forehead violently with one hand and smote his chest with the other. He stamped his foot thunderously on the ground, and then he leaped up to the ceiling and came down with an elastic bound. Then he laughed, a wild, exulting ha-ha, with a strange, triumphant roar that filled the house and re-echoed through it, a sound full of fierce, animal, rapture, enjoyment of sensual life mixed up with a sort of horror. After all, real as it was, it was like the sounds a man makes in a dream. And this, while the potent drought seemed still to be making its way through his system, and the frightened apothecary thought that he intended a revengeful onslaught upon himself. Finally, he uttered a loud, unearthly screech, in the midst of which his voice broke, as if some unseen hand were throttling him, and starting forward he fought frantically, as if he would clutch the life that was being rent away, 
and fell forward with a dead thump upon the floor. Colonel! Colonel! cried the terrified doctor. The feeble old man with difficulty turned over the heavy frame and saw at once, with practiced eye, that he was dead. He set him up and the corpse looked at him with angry reproach. He was so startled that his subsequent recollections of the moment were neither distinct nor steadfast. But he fancied, though he told the strange impression to no one, that on his first glimpse of the face, with the dark flush of what looked like rage still upon it, it was a young man's face that he saw. A face with all the passionate energy of early manhood. The capacity for furious anger which the man had lost half a century ago, crammed to the brim with vigor till it became agony. But the next moment, if it were so, which it could not have been, the face grew ashen, withered, shrunken, more aged than in life, though still the murderous fierceness remained, and seemed to be petrified forever upon it. After a moment's bewilderment, Dolliver ran to the window, looking to the street, threw it open, and called loudly for assistance. He opened also another window for the air to blow through, for he was almost stifled with the rich odor of the cordial which filled the room, and was now exuded from the corpse. He heard the voice of Pansy crying at the door which was locked, and turning the key he caught her in his arms, and hastened with her below stairs to give her into the charge of Martha, who seemed half stupefied with a sense of something awful that had occurred. Meanwhile there was a rattling and a banging at the street portal, to which several people had been attracted both by the doctor's outcry from the window and by the awful screech, in which the colonel's spirit, if indeed he had that divine part, had just previously taken its flight. He let them in, and pale and shivering, ushered them up to the death chamber where one or two, with a more delicate sense of smelling than the rest, snuffed the atmosphere, as if sensible of an unknown fragrance yet appeared afraid to breathe when they saw the terrific countenance leaning back against the chair and eyeing them so truculently. I would fain quit the scene and have done with the colonel, who, I am glad, has happened to die at so early a period of the narrative. I therefore hasten to say that a coroner's inquest was held on the spot, though everybody felt that it was merely ceremonial, and that the testimony of their good and ancient townsman, Dr. Dolliver, was amply sufficient to settle the matter. The verdict was, death by the visitation of God. The apothecary gave evidence that the colonel, without asking leave, and positively against his advice, had drunk a quantity of distilled spirits, and one or two servants, or members of the colonel's family, testified that he had been in a very uncomfortable state of mind for some days past, so that they fancied he was insane. Therefore, nobody thought of blaming Dr. Dolliver for what had happened. And if the plain truth must be told, everybody who saw the wretch was too well content to be rid of him, to trouble themselves more than was quite necessary about the way in which the encumbrance had been removed. The corpse was taken to the mansion in order to receive a magnificent funeral and Dr. Dolliver was left outwardly and quiet. But much disturbed, and indeed almost overwhelmed inwardly, by what had happened. Yet it is to be observed that he had accounted for the death with a singular dexterity of expression, when he attributed it to a dose of distilled spirits. What kind of distilled spirits were those, Doctor? And will you venture to take any more of them? End of section 3